Well, good morning. Please turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 1. Please turn again to Habakkuk and chapter 1. We come to the second week in our series in the book of Habakkuk. That will be in chapters 1 and 2 this morning. As I preach this message, I'm aware that I don't know everyone who downloads these messages online, downloads these sermons, and everyone who's tuning in to listen to them, but I do know of at least a few types of people who are definitely listening. Some who listen to these messages online and week by week are not Christians. So some of you listening to this message, you don't profess to be a Christian, you don't pretend to be a Christian. But nonetheless, you're listening to this sermon, and maybe you've listened to other sermons before. And uh, Sometimes, if we're being honest, you wonder what it's all about. Uh, I, I, mean, I mean, this whole Christian thing, this whole church thing, uh, what is it all about? What do these Christians actually believe about God and about their relationship with Him? Uh, you may have noticed that we talk about God uh, a lot and about uh, our relationship uh, with Him. You may have noticed we talk a lot about how holy God is and how great and awesome He is. Uh, and you may have noticed we talk a lot about sin, the need to be saved, the need to be born again. And maybe at times you've wondered, uh, not aloud, but at least in your mind, how it is that someone can become right with God. So, so in the Christian framework, in the Bible, how is it that a sinner becomes right with God? Is it a matter primarily of following the right rules? Is it as simple as uh, don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with the guys that do? Uh, is it a matter of going to church and attending services and sacraments and confession and things like that? Is it a matter of prayer and fasting? Is it by walking an aisle and signing a card? Uh, very simply, you've wondered, how does someone become right with God? What is this all about? And how does someone enter into a relationship with God? Well, there are others who are listening to this message uh, who are believers, are Christians, and perhaps you're a new Christian, uh, you're a young Christian, uh, and you would say, I've been converted, I've been born again, I've become a Christ follower. Uh, and of course, you're excited and you're thankful to be a Christian. But if you're honest, you sort of wonder after the initial excitement of being born again and, and identifying with Christ, you sort of wonder, uh, now what? What is the Christian life all about? How is it meant to be lived? I know I don't just go back to living like I did before when I was not a Christian. I know the Bible says I'm to be holy and I'm to endure some measure of hardship, take up my cross every day and follow Jesus. But how do I do that, really? How am I supposed to live? Others who are listening to this sermon have been Christians for some time, and you have at some point in the past or are presently struggling with great hardship and trial. You've known winters in your Christian life. You've known times of suffering and trial and difficulty. And some of you are in, in the middle of that even right now as you listen to this message, and you're wondering, how do I cope? 
How do I walk through pain and suffering as a Christian? Do I just grit my teeth and bear it? How do I live my Christian life when life seems so hard? Others are wrestling with unanswered questions. God's ways and His providences in your life have confounded you, and you wonder, how can I live as a Christian in light of my unanswered questions? These are all different types of people who I think are listening to this message. These are all the sorts of different questions we bring to the Word of God. Well, could the Bible answer all of these questions and address all of these different people I've imagined? More than that, could the Bible answer all of these questions at once, like like in one place, like literally in one verse? And not just one verse, but one part of one verse. And one part of one verse in an ancient book with a name as strange as Habakkuk. Uh, Not surprisingly, I'm going to argue that the answer is yes. The answer to all of these questions I've imagined here in the introduction to this sermon uh, comes to us, the answer to these questions comes to us in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4b, the the second part of Habakkuk 2.4, which says, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith by faith. Now, I want to open up that verse this morning, give special attention to that statement in Habakkuk 2, 4b, and I want to do so in its larger context in the book of Habakkuk. And so this morning, our exposition will cover Habakkuk 1, verse 12 through Habakkuk 2, verse 20. Let me remind you what we saw uh, last time. Uh, The book of Habakkuk, we, we recognize uh, is, is not Habakkuk speaking to the people of Israel, but Habakkuk dialoguing directly with God. And it's about Habakkuk's particular crisis of faith. And, and the book begins with Habakkuk looking at his native people, Judah, the southern kingdom, which is not yet in, in captivity. He's looking at, at Judah, and he's concerned by the unrighteousness and the immorality and the injustice that he sees prevailing in the kingdom of Judah. And he he asks God to address the situation. A God who is too holy to look upon evil idly. He he asks God to look upon the situation and address the situation. Well, then God answers Habakkuk and essentially says in verse 5 and following of chapter 1 that he's going to do something that will utterly and totally confound Habakkuk. It's the sort of thing God says Even if I told you all that I was doing, you wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't comprehend it. You wouldn't understand what my providence is about to do, what my providence is about to bring about for the people of Judah. And then God announces in verse 6, he's going to judge Judah by raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. God's going to raise up this wicked nation. And he's going to appoint them over Judah, and they are going to be God's instrument of judgment over Judah. And so as far as some of the lessons for us last time, we considered how God's ways can sometimes confound and perplex us. We considered how God sometimes uses dark providences in our lives to advance his purposes. And we saw that 
we are ultimately answerable to God, not God to us. And we saw that what's needed most of all, when, when many of our questions about God's providence go unanswered, is faith. That the, the solution to our wrestlings and strivings and strugglings with the providence of God is not ultimately for God to give us answers to all of our questions, but rather it's for us to have faith in the goodness and sovereignty and power and faithfulness of God. So that's what happens in the first 11 verses. Habakkuk gives his first, what we call his first lament or his first complaint, and he, he asks God to address the sinfulness and injustice in Judah. God says he's going to do so. He's going to raise up the Chaldeans. He's going to raise up the Babylonians, and they're going to be his instruments of judgment over the kingdom of Judah. And now, beginning in verse 12, we have Habakkuk's second complaint. So I want to open up chapter 1, verse 12, on through chapter 2, verse 20. We'll do so under three main headings. We'll look, first of all, at Habakkuk's second complaint, and that is 1.12 through 2.1, and then we'll look at God's response, which is chapter 2, verse 2, through the end of chapter 2, and then we'll consider some lessons for us. So consider with me first Habakkuk's second complaint, which, which I'll just summarize for you here at the front end. He's asked God to address the injustice of Judah. God says he's going to raise up the Babylonians. And in essence, Habakkuk's second complaint, his second lament is, really, God? The Babylonians? These are the ones you're going to use, a nation more wicked than Judah? This is going to be your instrument of judgment? Well, there's three observations I want us to uh, notice about Habakkuk's second complaint. The first is this, Habakkuk opens with a statement of faith and acceptance. Habakkuk opens with a statement of faith and acceptance. Verse 12, Habakkuk says to God, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them, speaking of the Babylonians, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. So, so Habakkuk expresses uh, his certainty about who God is and what his character is like. Habakkuk does not doubt the existence, uh, the power, or the holiness of God. He declares that God is from, from everlasting. He declares that God is perfectly holy and that he alone is God. Habakkuk starts on the front end of this, what's going to be a second complaint, a second lament. On the front end, he begins with a statement of faith in God. I know, God, that you are from everlasting to everlasting. I know you're holy. You are my God, my rock, my holy one. Moreover, Habakkuk also expresses a certainty regarding God's plans and purposes for his covenant people. He says, we're not going to die. This is not going to be the end of your promises and purposes for Israel. This will be a judgment, yes, a chastisement, yes, but this will not bring about an end to your promises. Habakkuk knew the Torah. He knew the Pentateuch. He knew of God's dealings with uh, the patriarchs, his fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he knew about the covenants. He would have heard the Psalms read aloud in the temple. He knows that God will not abandon his covenant people, that God will ultimately remember his promises. This coming 
Babylonian captivity will be for judgment and for reproof, but it would not mean the extinguishing of God's redemptive purposes. Habakkuk gets this. He maintains his faith in the promise of God. But then notice, secondly, about Habakkuk's second complaint, secondly, observe with me that Habakkuk questions God's holiness and justice. Habakkuk questions God's holiness and justice. Now, that's the heading I'm giving this, but it's important you understand what I mean by that language. Okay, so Habakkuk doesn't question whether God is holy and just. That is never in doubt in Habakkuk's mind. In fact, it is this sure and fixed, unshakable fact that actually provokes Habakkuk's struggle. His question is not, is God holy, just, and good? That's, that's not his question. Rather, his question is, because I know God is holy, just, and good, well, how then can I make sense of God's present mode of acting? How can I make sense of his providence? Uh, that is, his raising up of a flagrantly wicked people like the Babylonians, who are far more wicked than the Israelites, to be his instrument of judgment over the Israelites. Habakkuk wants to understand essentially how he can reconcile God's mode of acting with the sure fact that God is holy and just and good. He wants to reconcile God's character with God's providence. He senses an apparent contradiction between the two, and this is how he expresses himself in the passage itself. So Habakkuk 1 verse 13, he says to the Lord, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? See the tension. God is holy, that's for sure. I don't doubt that about you, God. I know you're holy. I know you're just. And yet it seems that you are approving and showing preference for the nation more unrighteous than us. You are allowing them to rule over us. And that way of acting, that, that, that mode of providence doesn't seem to accord with what we know about your person and about your nature. He says, verse 14, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He, he being Babylon, gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. You see, again, mankind was the pinnacle of God's creation. In fact, mankind was to have dominion over the fish of the sea. And yet Habakkuk says, the way you are acting in your providence makes it as though mankind are like the fish of the sea. And gathered up in the dragnet of an aggressively sinful and wicked people. You see the apparent tension between what we know about God and what his providence is bringing about. Verse 16, therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Again, the tension, God who hates idolatry, the one true God who alone ought to be worshipped, seems to be tolerating the same and allowing it to go on. 
So Habakkuk is wrestling. He's wondering, how can I reconcile these things, these providences with what I know of God? How can I reconcile his providence with his character? Let me just say at this point, this is a timeless question. This is a question God's people have been wrestling with since the beginning. Like, like we wrestle with this in our lives. I mean, don't you, Christian? Look, I, I, know, I know this to be true about God. I know what the Scriptures say about Him. More than that, this has been vindicated in my own experience and vindicated in the Gospel. God is good. God is faithful. God is holy. God is just. The Lord of all will do right. And yet, here's this thing. This dark providence, this thorn in my flesh, this trial, this form of, of, of suffering and abuse and, and wrongdoing that I am suffering, this ugly thing. And, and I have to recognize that this thing, this providence, be it dark, be it evil, whatever it is, this has come into my life as part of the providence of a God who I know to be good and holy and just and faithful. And we sense a tension between those two things. This ugly thing, this, this terrible thing, is coming into my life by way of a God who I know is good and holy, right and faithful and loving and caring. We can sympathize, I think, deeply with Habakkuk at this point because we see in our lives providences that don't seem to accord with what we know to be true of God. Third and final thing to notice about Habakkuk's second complaint, very briefly, Habakkuk humbly readies himself for God's answer. He humbly readies himself for God's answer. I'm working with verse 1 here, which says, uh, chapter 2, that is, I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me what I will answer concerning my complaint. Now, how should we interpret Habakkuk's words? Chapter 2, verse 1. Well, I personally don't think we should hear these words as a sort of defiance against God on Habakkuk's part. Like he's obstinately accusing God and demanding that God provide answers and that God give a defense for himself. I don't think we should think that Habakkuk is making some sort of arrogant charge against God. You answer me, God. You, you, you give a defense for what it is you've brought into my life. I don't think that's Habakkuk's tone. I don't think that's Habakkuk's heart. Rather, I believe Habakkuk is humbly looking to God for answers to questions that have simply wrung his heart dry. But he seems to understand, I think, that God is over him, God is over Judah. God is over Babylon. He's in complete control. God is good. God is faithful. God is holy. And he seems to understand that he, Habakkuk, ultimately depends upon God. Uh, he's basically saying, I think in 2.1, that I will wait on the Lord. And I will accept his answer, whatever that answer may be. He's not shaking his fist at God. He seems to be asking humble and honest questions and seems furthermore to assume the posture of one who is ready to receive whatever God says. And that will be enough for him. 
We sense in Habakkuk 2.1 a sort of readiness to assume the posture of quiet acceptance to whatever God will say to him. Now this, I think, is a crucial issue for us, um, an important distinction to make, because, because Christians often wrestle, I think, with the issue of, of whether it's permissible, allowable, even right, to question God. Are we permitted the space to question God and to ask God questions? And, and, and this, I think, is the difference between, on the one hand, a sort of defiant rebellious confrontation of God. God, you owe me answers. You did this. God, you answer for yourself. We are never permitted to talk to God that way. He doesn't answer to me. I answer to Him. That kind of finger in your face, shaking your fist at God's sort of questioning is never permissible. But, but there is, I think, a sort of questioning that the Bible itself actually commends. And I think we have it modeled here in Habakkuk. A sort of humble, simple, and even worshipful acknowledgement of our questions and struggles that we humbly lay before God, awaiting His good and righteous answer. Habakkuk is already assuming the posture of submission to whatever God says to him. He is doing as the Apostle Peter says, humbling himself under the mighty hand of God. It's not wrong to ask God questions. If it's in the spirit of, Lord, I'm making my burdens known to you, my concerns known to you, and I will embrace whatever you say to me. I, I will take your answer, and I will live according to it and in the light of it. That sort of wrestling, that sort of lamenting, that sort of questioning, I think the Bible permits. Well, now consider with me, secondly, God's answer. God's answer. So we've seen Habakkuk's Second complaint in 1.12 through 2.1, now consider God's answer. This is the second time in the book of Habakkuk he is answering uh, in return to Habakkuk. And as there were three things to observe about Habakkuk's complaint, there are three things I'd like us to observe about God's answer to Habakkuk. Number one, observe with me that his answer contains, first of all, a preamble of hope. A preamble of hope. Habakkuk 2, verses 2 through 3. And the Lord answered me, write the vision and make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. God is going to begin his answer, and this will be his final answer begins his answer by, in essence, saying, what I'm about to tell you is of the greatest importance. You write this down. And he says, you write it so that, you write it clearly so that he who runs may read it. The idea of running would be the idea of being sent to speak on behalf of God. And the idea is that Habakkuk is to record precisely what God tells him. And it would seem that God wants Habakkuk to publish this information, not only for himself. This wasn't to be Habakkuk's private prayer journal but rather this was to be published for the people of God, and not just the people of God in that day, but subsequent generations of the people of God, and even for us. So the fact that Habakkuk is in our Bibles is due to Habakkuk 2 and verse 2. And then there's this preamble of hope, this idea that a, a promise is coming, a vision is coming. Verse 3, for the, 
The vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. There's a coming answer, a coming solution. God calls Habakkuk to wait and hope. It will surely come. It will not delay. Notice secondly about God's answer. Secondly, he gives a word for the wicked. A word for the wicked. A preamble of hope. Secondly, a word for the wicked. And I just want to read these words that we have in Habakkuk 2, verses 4 and following. Here, God is going to tell Habakkuk of his coming judgment, not upon Judah, but upon Babylon. He's announced that he's going to reprove Judah by raising up the Chaldeans to rule over Judah. But now he's going to talk about the coming judgment on the Chaldeans, upon the Babylonians. Verse 4, behold, his soul is puffed up. That's Babylon's soul. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. And, And let's just leave 4b for a moment. The righteous shall live by faith. Verse 5. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Verse 7, will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many people. You have forfeited your life. Verse 11. The stone, excuse me, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire. And nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. And utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a, a metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols? Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, and to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. What do we have in these words from Yahweh? These words from the Lord. God lists a number of the sins of the Chaldeans and announces 
that they will be held to account for their sins. He sees their pride and their arrogance, their drunkenness and debauchery, their greed, their gluttony, their enslaving and abusing of others, their stealing, all their murder and violence, their injustice and their idolatry. And God says, make no mistake, Habakkuk, they will be judged. Now you could imagine the Chaldeans, Babylonians carrying on their wickedness for many decades as if God does not know or does not care. And from their perspective, they can live however they like. And they could do so with impunity going from one sinful indulgence to another. Now what we have in Habakkuk 2 in verses 4 through 20 is God himself cataloging for us the many forms of wickedness and evil carried out by the Babylonians. And it all moves toward this stunning conclusion in verse 20. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. God sees. And he's not dumb and silent like those worthless idols, like all the Faco gods of the nations. He sees, he will act, and all will answer to him. Because God is still in his holy temple. And all flesh, all mankind will answer to him. God makes clear to Habakkuk that he sees the wickedness of the Babylonians and he will judge their wickedness. It may carry on for several years, but God is not slow to act. He will come and bring judgment upon them. Friends, the nations of the world are answerable to God. Nations who oppress their citizens and steal from them. Leaders and courts and law enforcement who are corrupt. Nations that engage in unjust war and mass genocides. All forms of injustice that are perpetrated by nations throughout the world. Nations that murder their unborn babies, calling it a fundamental human right to do so. Nations who redefine institutions like marriage, gender, and the family in order to justify wickedness. Uh, nations that call good evil and evil good. God is not blind. God is in His holy temple. God sees all, and the nations of the world will answer to Him. The Bible says He holds the nations in derision, Psalm 2. Those nations that parade themselves, masquerade themselves as though they are gods unto themselves, as though they can sin and perpetrate injustice and debauchery and idolatry with impunity, God says, I see, and I will judge. And all the nations of the world will answer to me. God will bring about a cosmic reckoning. There is no wrong that has been perpetrated in this world that will not be righted. Justice will finally be served in the courtroom of heaven. And I just have to say, for you who are watching, 
that as the nations are answerable to God, so every individual sinner is answerable to God. My friend, are you prepared to answer to the God of the universe? This is God's word to those who carry out wickedness and evil. This is God's word to those who don't acknowledge him, but instead worship idols. This is God's word to those who live for sinful pleasure and who refuse to bow the knee to God and live according to his ways. God says very plainly, you will answer. My friend, how sad it would be for you to live your whole life distracted by the passing pleasures, distractions, and sinful indulgences of this world. Just living your life distracted by one sinful thing after another, only to die and then appear in silence before the God of all. And then to recognize he saw everything. To appear for the judgment seat of God after a lifetime of living in sin and in wickedness. And to only then realize that he saw everything. Oh, my friend, you don't have to wait till that day to come to this realization. It's revealed to you now in Habakkuk chapter 2 that God is in His holy temple. We are all answerable to Him. And there is a way by which you can be made right with this God who has seen every wrong thing you have ever done. And that does lead to our third point. The third aspect of God's response God gives a preamble of hope, a word to the wicked, thirdly and finally, a word for the righteous, and this is found back up in verse 4b. Did you catch that little phrase? He says, behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. This is indeed the message of the book of Habakkuk, and I think it's one of the major themes in all the Bible. So I want to break down this little phrase briefly in the minutes that remain. An important question we should ask of this phrase, 2, 4b, the righteous will live by faith, is who are the righteous? Well, in context, in the book of Habakkuk, and indeed in the context of the whole Old Testament, we don't have to wonder, the righteous are God's special people. Those who have been called by God, those who have faith in His promises, and those who observe His ways. So, so these would be those Israelites in, in that day who trusted God, but who followed and worshipped God. These are the ones God refers to as the righteous. But now a second question. How did they become righteous? The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous are those who believe the promises of God and follow Yahweh. But how did they enter the circle of the righteous or the just? How did they become righteous? And this is so important to appreciate. They did not become righteous by stringent, assiduous attention to the Mosaic prescriptions, to the law, 
they became righteous, just, that is, right with God, the same way that every person who has ever been right with God has become right with God. They became righteous, namely, by faith. Became righteous by faith. Now, now the, the key text, and there are many texts in the Old Testament we could turn to, the key text that addresses this is Genesis 15 and verse 6. You could turn there, you could listen to me read it. In Genesis 15, we have the account of Abraham, one of the foremost figures in the whole Old Testament. We refer to him as Father Abraham. Habakkuk would have known the story and narrative of Abraham's life. And God reveals himself to Abraham, makes a covenant with Abraham, makes promises about a coming redemption for Abraham and his seed. He says that there's going to come this son of Abraham who's going to be a blessing to all the nations and bring salvation and deliverance to all the people. And in Genesis 15 and 6, we have Abraham's response. There we read, he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him, credited to him, reckoned to him, imputed to him as righteousness. Abraham did not come into the circle of the just, the righteous, by stringent attention to the law of God or a, a, a program of religious formalism. He became righteous by means of faith in what God would surely do, in God's promise of sending a deliverer to bring about salvation. The Apostle Paul reflects on, on this verse in Genesis 15 in his epistle to the Galatians in chapter 3. And there the Apostle Paul says, just track with me here, there the Apostle Paul says, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So, so he's saying, uh, uh, you are not saved, you are not considered a son of Abraham just because you obey the law or because you are an ethnic Jew or something like that. The true sons of Abraham are those who, like Abraham, have faith in the promises of God. They are the true sons of Abraham. They, like Abraham, are justified by faith. So Galatians 3 verse 9 says, So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. In other words, they will be justified, enter the circle of the righteous, of the just, by means of faith in what God would do, not by means of their stringent attention to the Mosaic law, not by means of their righteous record, not by means of religious formalism, but rather by faith in what God would do. And then we read in verse 11, here's the connection back to our text and back to 4. In Galatians 3.11, then Paul says, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. And then he quotes Habakkuk 2.4, our text. For the righteous shall live by faith. No, no one is justified before God by the law, by obedience to the law. Rather, the righteous shall live by faith. 
It is this sense in which the Apostle Paul makes use of this phrase from Habakkuk 2.4. He does the same thing. He quotes Habakkuk 2.4 in another place in the New Testament in his epistle to the Romans, chapter 1, verse 17. In both places, he uses Habakkuk 2.4 as, as, as bolstering, as forming part of the foundation for the doctrine of justification by faith. That is that a man or a woman, a sinner, can be made right with God by faith, not by works of the law. Not by religiosity, not by obeying Moses, not by a series of legal prescriptions, not by legalism. The way in which a sinner, someone who has been a rebel against God, someone who has violated God's law, someone who has a sin nature, the way in which a sinner becomes right with God is by believing and trusting in God's provision. Abraham looked ahead to that provision. God would send a deliverer, a Messiah, one who would bring salvation and deliverance for God's people. Habakkuk, like Abraham, looked ahead to a Savior, a Messiah, who would bring deliverance for God's people. Their faith was in the coming fulfillment of a promise, the promise that God would raise up a Savior. What about our faith? Because isn't that what Paul says? Habakkuk 2.4 applies to us as well. We are justified by faith, not by the law. Well, our faith rests in the full revelation of that same promise that Abraham and Habakkuk would have known. We just see it now with greater clarity. Our faith rests in Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, who is the Son of God and the Savior for sinners. And the way in which a sinner now becomes right with God, enters the circle of the just, the righteous, is by believing in Him, turning from sin, trusting and following Christ. We have the forgiveness of sins and are declared righteous in the sight of holy God. The righteous shall live by faith. How does one become righteous? By faith. Now, that's gloriously true. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. But having said that, that's actually not Habakkuk's primary meaning in this verse. Habakkuk, unlike Paul, is not primarily concerned to speak to how one becomes righteous. He just states that they are righteous. He's not concerned to speak primarily with how one becomes righteous, though there's certainly no contradiction between Paul and Habakkuk, and Paul's usage of Habakkuk is not illegitimate. Now, what Habakkuk is most concerned about in his context, in his day, is how he and other Jews like him could persevere could endure, could walk through hard times, times of trial, times of suffering, times of great testing, when the promises of God look dim, when the triumph of Israel's enemies seems certain, namely when the Chaldeans invade us and take over our land. How are we going to walk? How will we live in the midst of trial? How would we persevere? How can we endure such hard providences from God? How can we then live? And this is the answer from God. Habakkuk 2, 4b. How will you live? The righteous will live by faith. 
It's the life of faith that will help you to endure. See, the same faith that saves us, that brings us within the circle of the just, the righteous, that makes us righteous before a holy God, is the same faith by which we endure and persevere through perilous times. God tells Habakkuk, there is this coming judgment, this coming trial. Difficult days are ahead. How will you endure? You will believe God's promises. And by faith in what God has pledged that he will surely do, you will live. Now is the hour for faith. Just as faith introduced you into a right relationship with God, you will persevere and walk now by faith, trusting that God will not destroy you, God will not vanquish you, God will use this in your life, He's orchestrating His purposes in all of this, His providences are bringing about your good. You will believe what God has said is true, and God will surely work out His purposes in your life. You will persevere by faith. There's a couple aspects to this life of faith, this living by faith. First of all, you, you will live in the sense that you will be enabled to cope. You'll be able to persevere. You'll be sustained. You'll maintain joy through trial and faith through suffering. You'll be enabled to cope with the hardships that are before you. God will enable His people to withstand suffering by faith. Now, I said that Habakkuk 2.4 was quoted in three places in the New Testament. I said that last week. I've mentioned two of them. They're in Paul in Romans 1 and Galatians 3. The third place that Habakkuk 2.4 is mentioned is in Hebrews 10. And I would invite you to go ahead and turn there. Hebrews 10, verse 35. The writer to the Hebrews is concerned to write to those who are suffering those who are enduring trial and hardship, and he's concerned that they would be strong and that they would walk by faith and that they would endure the hardships that are coming their way. And it's in that context that he's going to cite Habakkuk 2.4 because they need to endure, they need to persevere, and this is the verse that he calls to mind. Hebrews 10, verses 35 through 39. There the writer says, Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance. Do you have need of endurance? So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And then he says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And do you know what comes in the very next chapter? He says, he says the righteous will live, they'll endure, they'll persevere by faith. And then he goes into Hebrews 11, which we call the Hall of Faith. And he tells the story, the stories of those great saints gone before, of Abel and Noah and Abraham, and Sarah, and Moses, and Rahab, and David, all these ones who walked by faith, endured great trials, great hardships, great suffering, but they endured, they persevered by faith in what God would do, that God's promise would be sure, that He would stand with them, that He would help them, and they were enabled by faith in what God would do for them to persevere and to provide a great model for all saints who would come after them. 
What is emphasized is that these great saints of old didn't just enter the circle of the righteous by means of faith, but they lived by faith. They persevered by faith. They walked by faith. And when all around them was darkness and sorrow and trial and night, faith in God burned brightly. Faith in the promises of God shined forth and saw them through. They had a deeper sense of God and His purposes and His plans and His promises. And that is how they lived. And in our passage, God makes this announcement to Habakkuk. The solution, Habakkuk, will not be in you finding answers to all your questions or somehow evading my providences, but rather, as this chastisement comes upon Judah, and as the promise looks dim, faith in God will be your light. How will you cope and how will you live and how will you endure the hardships that are to come? It will be by faith. Still more that can be said. My time is running out. But just appreciate also because faith is not just the means by which we become righteous, but it's also the means by which We persevere through difficulty, the means by which we live. It is also by faith that we will live in the ultimate sense. We will live forever. It is by faith that we enter the circle of the righteous. We believe God, and by believing in Him, have the gift of righteousness. It is by faith that we persevere through all the storms and trials of this life. And it is by faith that we will lay hold of our final reward eternal life, forever with God in Christ in heaven. The just will live. That is truly live. Live forever by faith. Let me close with just two brief lessons for us. Two brief lessons for us. Number one, very simply, as Habakkuk and every saint before him persevered by faith, we too must persevere by faith. How are you going to walk through the trials that God's providence have introduced into your life? In the face of dark providences that confound us, the righteous shall live by faith. In the face of trials that wring our hearts dry, the righteous shall live by faith. In the teeth of suffering and persecution, the righteous shall live by faith. In the midst of those cold and dark nights of the soul, the righteous shall live by faith. How do we endure the hardships of this life? By laying hold of what God has said in His Word, by believing that He will indeed work all things together for our good, by believing the Lord Jesus who tells us that He will never leave us or forsake us, but that He will be with us to the end of the age, by believing that He sympathizes with us, that He is for us, and that He has for us grace to help in our time of need. We believe in the promises of God, and by faith we lay hold of them, and thereby we persevere, thereby we navigate the storms of this life. We lay hold of Jesus. We trust in Him. And as it was by faith in Jesus that we were first saved and entered the circle of the righteous, so it is by faith in Jesus that we will make it through the night till we see His face in paradise. Second lesson for us. 
sinners are justified by faith in Christ. So you, my friend, watching this message, listening to this message, you maybe see that, that you are actually in the situation of those Babylonians all those years ago. You've just been living your life as if no one is watching. And as you reflect back on the catalog of your sins, the record of your life, and as you appreciate and understand that one day all of that will be laid bare, God has seen it all. Perhaps you appreciate that your sins have introduced a chasm between you and God. How is it that a sinner like you, a sinner like me, a sinner like all of us, could live in right relationship with God. And listen, I'm aware it's Easter Sunday. Lots of people uh, are accessing sermons and Christian content because that's what you do on Easter. So maybe somehow someone's passed this video on to you. You're listening in. You're not a normal churchgoer. and, And you have your preconceived notions about Christians, about what they believe and what their message is. And perhaps you think that we are those who believe we're better than other people. Perhaps it's been your perception that the way in which we think we become right with God and are given our ticket to heaven is by walking an aisle and praying a prayer, or maybe it's our good outweighing our bad, or maybe if we just go to church more Sundays than we don't, or if we go to confession enough or rub some beads together, or whatever someone told you about Christianity, that's your sense of how we think we become right with God. It is my pleasure to correct you. We know that we are sinners in need of the grace of God and we're not better than anybody. We know that our sins, our perverse hearts, our wrongdoings, our rebellion against God has introduced a great chasm between His holiness and His righteousness and His justice and our pathetic little sinful lives. But we have laid hold of the provision in God's Word By God's grace, He has shown us that the righteous shall live by faith. That God is pleased to count righteous those who embrace His provision for salvation. And that provision is the Lord Jesus Christ risen from the dead, who was raised, as the Scriptures say, for our justification. How can I become right with holy God? How could I enter into restored relationship with my maker? How can I know eternal life and peace forevermore? It is through embracing, believing upon Jesus Christ who rose from the dead for the justification of sinners like you and me. And that's how we can enter into salvation. That's how we can be counted right with God. And so I invite you, my friend, this Easter Sunday to embrace God's provision to live by faith, to lay hold of Him by faith, and to find eternal life in Him. Repent of your sins. Turn from your sins. Don't wait until that day when you will stand before God in His holy temple as all the earth keeps silence before Him. Go to Him now and find mercy and compassion and sweet pardon and the provision He has made in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that you too might live by faith. Let's pray.
our Father in heaven. We thank you that you are pleased to save sinners. Sinners who have not just cleaned up their acts, and sinners who have done more good than bad, but filthy, vile, and helpless sinners who could do nothing to save themselves except to lay hold of the provision you have made for salvation. May each soul lay hold of Jesus today, embracing Him in repentance and faith for the salvation of our souls. May each one who hears my voice this morning enter in to a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus, that they too might be made right with God and find everlasting life in Him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.